Hello, and welcome to The Franklin Files. I'm Gordon Franklin, and I'd like to thank you for joining us and listening to this message today. I trust it'll be a real challenge to your mind, a comfort to your heart, and practical hope for the chapter of life that you're facing today. Take our Father's word, shall we? And turn to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark this morning. I'd like to trek through with you for a few moments that we have this morning what someone has called the question or the problem of the six rarest words in the English language. These words are, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. They're pretty rare sometimes. Have you ever known? Have you ever worked with? May God forbid, have you ever lived with? Someone who never made a mistake or thought they didn't. Someone to whom failure was foreign. You know, what I always wonder about and what I can never figure out with these kind of people is what in the world they do in terms of relating to the Bible, where there is so much failure recorded. And it's obvious to even the most casual reader that the pages of this book are absolutely pregnant with and pervaded with people who failed in their faith, who made mistakes. And these facts of failure encourage me, I don't know about you, but they encourage me because they tell me, just by way of starting here, two very, very important things. First of all, they remind me that it must be God who is the author of this book, rather than man. Because if it was man, he would gloss over these errors, he would gloss over these sins, these failures, these mistakes, if they weren't convenient. But not God. When God paints the portrait, God paints the portrait, warts and all. And the second important thing that these failures tell me about this book is that not only is it God-breathed and God-inspired and God-authored, but that that God is a God of grace. And that's why those things were left there for us. He wanted me to profit from the experience of these failures in the lives of others. So whenever we look at these failures, as we're going to do this morning, anytime you see them, Remember, as I'm sure you've thought about before, that these are always instructive, they're always educative. They're like red lights flashing, saying, danger, trouble ahead, crying out, watch it, caution. It can happen to you, it can happen to me, here, right here. And I don't suppose there's a greater litany of mistakes in all the pages of the New Testament that there is in these ones that are detailed in Mark chapter 14, commencing to read at about verse 27. Because of the length of the passage this morning, I thought we would again track through it together, maybe rather than read it all at, uh, all at one time. We have recorded here the defection of Peter at the trial of his Lord. Let's pray together over the word, Heavenly Father. We want to bow for a moment again. We've already read from your word. 
We have prayed together that the, the eyes of our mind, of our heart would be open, we'd understand in a practical way how we might relate to those who fail. And in that, I suppose, Lord, we're asking again that you would open our eyes to understand how we can relate to ourselves because every one of us have or are failing and have made grievous errors and mistakes and have gone through that horrific experience. And some of us brought them to Manhattan this summer. We brought some of these failures. We want to learn this morning. We want to go away different people so that we will not go simply through the same reciprocal cycle again next fall and next winter. And that's my prayer. I pray that as we bow around the word this morning again, that we would be able to learn from it, be instructed by it, be changed by it. We will thank you for that in Jesus' name. We pray these things. Amen. I've always or often noted, and I'm sure you have too, that the thing that has to be the most instructive about this particular passage about Peter's failures and the thing that hits home to us is that Peter's failure was not a blowout. It was a slow leak. Most failures are. That's the way it always is. Now somebody says, ah, no, it just appears like somebody dropped off a precipice and failed. Well, that might be what you see, but I would like to remind us that what you are seeing is the result, uh, the end product of a process that's being developed for some time. And the Bible says that's the way it was with Peter's problem, too. In this passage, there is not one mistake that is laid out for us, but the Spirit of God, inspiring Mark to write, lists four or develops four slippery steps on the ladder or step or road to failure. And my whole purpose in going through that with us this morning is that we might avoid this same trap of boasting too much, praying too little, acting too soon, and thinking too late. Have you ever noticed them in this passage? Let's take a look. First of all, in verses 28 to 31, the Bible records that Peter makes his first mistake, and it's the mistake of boasting too much. This is the error of misplaced confidence. The Lord says in verse 27, all of you will fall away for it is written and he quotes from the prophets, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am risen, I will go before you to Galilee, but Peter. Have you ever noticed that whenever Peter enters the narrative, it's never quietly, it's always with a thud. He never eases in, he rumbles in like a Mack truck or a Sherman tank. And so Peter, he just can't wait for Jesus to finish so that he can get his mouth open in the next verse and say, even though all the others fail you, I will not, Lord. I don't know about the rest of these men, but you can count on me. Underline that. We'll remember it in a moment or two. And even when the Lord in grace and mercy tries to stab him awake by saying, Peter, it's sooner than you think. I tell you the truth, yes, tonight before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Even then, in verse 31, Peter insists emphatically, doesn't he? Man, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown 
you. Then the writer adds an interesting little PS that is seldom picked up on or preached on. It says, and all the others, notice it there, and all the others said the same. See, everybody in that little group thought the same thing. Peter was just the mouth. He was just the spokesman for the party. But they all thought the same thing. Now, that's quite a claim, isn't it? I don't know about the rest of these guys, but Lord, you don't have to worry about me. I will never fail you. Well, that's certainly a laudable claim, but what was the problem in it? What was Peter's problem here? Well, his problem, I'd suggest to us, was certainly not insincerity, although sometimes it's taught that way. I think Peter meant exactly what he said, and I seriously question whether he was ever any more sincere than he was that night on that particular occasion. We're going to see in a moment that he was so sincere he was willing to take on a hundred armed men, single-handedly, to back up his claim. See, Peter's problem was not his insincerity. Peter's problem was his ignorance of a basic spiritual fact of life. And you know what it is. It's this, that as soon as I start saying, as soon as you start saying, Lord, you can count on me, you're about to slip on a spiritual banana peel and go sprawling in your faith. Someone earlier this week mentioned Brother Eddie Watt. I think it was Ira. He taught me in Sunday school, too. I remember back in one of those Sunday school classes that I got a little bookmark that they give us prizes in Sunday school, and on it were these profound words. When I try, I fail. But when I trust, he finishes. Man, there's a world of spiritual truth wrapped up in that couplet. Yet if your experience matches mine, I cannot believe, and I never cease to marvel at how often I seem to let it go in one ear and clean right out the other. And it's amazing that Peter apparently had done the same thing here. I say amazing because according to the parallel account in John 15, 5, if you look it up sometime, you'll find it was less than six hours earlier than this, less than six hours before this, that Jesus had tried to etch the truth on the ledger of the life of Peter and his others, the truth of those six mandatory words for spiritual success, without me, you can do quite a bit. Nothing. And, and Peter must have been there those six hours earlier. I'm sure he grunted a, amen. Say me amen. And Peter would say, amen. Oh, yes, Lord, that's good. That's pious, standard preacher's talk. Without me, you can do nothing. Six hours later, what is he doing? He's boasting in misplaced confidence. I don't care, Lord, and I don't know what the others are going to do, but you can count on me. But why did he fall into that trap? Well, you've got to go on and look with me at the second step, which is found in verses 32 to 34. You see, he didn't make this first mistake of boasting too much, and none of us ever do, in isolation. It's hooked in with the other three. And the second step is that he prayed too little. And mark the connection. Whenever you begin to boast too much, you will always pray too little. For prayer is simply the recognition 
that my need is not partial, but total. See, if I have adequate resources, why pray? If you have adequate intellect, or abilities, or giftedness, or talent to meet your need, why pray? And it's that mentality that gets us into this problem and into this cycle of failure. Remember how it happened that night? Peter, after his boast on the way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus had taken the disciples after that and uh, crossed the Tyropenean Valley, you recall, and out into a little garden or place called Gethsemane. And leaving them to watch, verse 22 says, he went a little further and agonized in prayer <clears throat> and came back to find them sleeping. And in verse 37, he singles out Simon Peter, and he says, Peter, are you asleep? Now, that doesn't come across very well in the English language, but in the original Greek text, that's in what we call the emphatic position. And it should be translated something like this. Peter, are you asleep? Not you, Peter. You, above all people, shouldn't be asleep. But Peter was down for the count. He was out like a light. He was in the second or third stage of anesthesia. So Peter, or so Jesus rather shakes him gently and reminds him of these intriguing words which you've heard so much. Watch and pray. So you will not fall into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. As you sit here this morning, if your experience matches mine and if you were really honest, I would imagine that you would have to confess that the one area of your Christian life in which you are constantly wrestling and so often shot down in flames is in your prayer life. How do you account for that? There's not a man or a woman here this morning that needs to sit here and be given an exhortation to pray. That's insulting. We all know that Jesus said to us, our Lord said to us, man ought always to pray and to never throw in the towel. We all know that Paul reiterated it, pray without ceasing. You see, like Peter, our, our failure in prayer is not an accident. I think it's a product, I'm afraid it's a product of cultivation. Cultivation that comes both from the enemy of our souls, and we have heard it this week from Brother Forrest, and from ourselves. Because the older I get, the more I'm convinced that Satan doesn't mind if we do a lot of things if we don't pray. I'm quite convinced that Satan doesn't mind too much if you witness for Christ just so long as you don't pray about it. Because he knows it's far more important to talk to God about man than it is to talk to man about God. Satan doesn't mind even if you study this book a little bit or maybe a whole lot if you don't pray. Because then you will develop simply a severe case of pride because there's nothing more lethal. And the only antidote is prayer. Because prayer is the recognition that my need is not partial, but total. You know what I've observed? I've observed over the years that one of the things you cannot do is popularize prayer. There's a lot of attempts to do so. I do a lot of seminars and studies, workshops. I can announce a seminar on contemporary issues. Man, the people come out of the woodwork to hear it. 
Have a prophetic series and you'll have to rent a bigger hall. But announce that you're simply going to meet for a prayer meeting. Man, the place looks like Hiroshima eight minutes after the bomb dropped. And there's no public relations tool that'll remedy that. Why? Because I say it again, prayer is simply the recognition that our need is total, not partial. And on that banana peel, spiritually, Peter had slipped. Boasted too much, prayed too little, Verse 43 to 50 then, there's a third mistake that Peter makes with which I'm sure most of us can identify and all of us can learn. And that's the mistake of acting too soon. Now again, mark the connection in the Christian walk in terms of relating to people with, who are wrestling through failures or that may be yourself, wrestling with mistakes. Whenever you boast too much, you're going to pray too little. If you're saying, Lord, you can count on me, you're not going to count on him. And if you're not going to count on him, you are invariably going to act too soon. And that's what happened to Peter, wasn't it? Verse 46 says, the story, remember the story? Out of the darkness came a little band of men led by Judas. And the Bible says one of the disciples, now the Gospel of John tells it was, it was Peter, drew his sword and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. You know, there's a lot of humor in the Scripture, even in some of these serious scenarios, and this one is really a classic, isn't it? Have you ever visionized it? Here, here's Peter, half dazed with sleep. But hearing the scuffle of the feet at the Lord's arrest comes to partial consciousness and seeing that they're seizing his friend and his master thinks, man, this is the time we got to get into action here. We got to get into gear. But he had a couple of problems, didn't he? Number one, he was sleepy. He was trying to come to action out of sleep. Have you ever tried to do that? Can you identify with them? Boy, I sure can. A little while ago, my sister called me at 10 to 6 in the morning. It was rather ironic. It was exactly the very same time as my clock radio went off. And I rolled out of bed, and my wife said she just watched incredulously as I tried to answer that clock radio and turn off the phone. Ever been in a situation like that? Well, that's what Peter was in. He's trying to come out of sleep and come into action all at once. So he had a problem. Not only was he sleepy, but he was angry. Up at the Bible school in Edmonton, on our faculty, we have a man who, in his younger days, used to do quite a bit of boxing and wrestling. And he was telling me that boxing and wrestling coaches will say that if you can ever get your opponent angry, you can whip him. Because an angry man is never fully in control. And that was Peter. So here he's coming out of sleep, and he's angered. And in the third place, he was a fisherman. Now, fishermen don't usually make very good swordsmen, either today or back then. They weren't like the Romans, you remember, of that day, the Roman soldiers who had to practice a minimum of one hour a day with the sword, standing the right way pivoting in the right way, bringing it up over their head to get the right leverage so that they could bring it right down in the middle of that helmet where the weak 
ancient weld, uh, welding bead was and thus divide the helmet and dispose of the adversary. Now, Peter had seen them do that. So he's thinking, man, that's a piece of cake. I've watched those guys do that lots of times. And that's exactly, there's no doubt in my mind what Peter intended to do, but he was a little off target. But what was Peter's problem here? In this third step on the slippery road to failure, he acted too soon. What was the problem? It's one that I notice most of us face, I think, every week, if not three or four times a day. To put it in a nutshell, he was active when he should have been passive, and he was passive when he should have been active. When he should have been active in prayer, he was passive in sleep. And when he should have been passive in recognition to the will of God, he was active with the sword. Have you ever, found, have you ever noticed, have you ever found yourself in that kind of situation? Somebody phones you, calls you on the phone and says, uh, Gert, I, I, I shouldn't be telling you this, but and that doesn't sound very good, so they usually reword it something like this. I, I, I want to tell you this so that you can pray more intelligently. Then they unload the whole crock of gossip. And they conclude with something like this. But, but you wouldn't tell anyone, would you, Gert? Oh, no, I wouldn't think of it. But you can scarcely wait to get off the horn so you can get back on and share some with somebody else that good news. Then less than a half an hour later, you're down at the mall with the choicest opportunity to witness and share your faith with an agnostic. And it's as if you got lockjaw. I mean, you are silent in 27 languages. Active when you should be passive. Passive when we should be active. Then there's a final, fourth, step on the slippery road to failure that so many of us wrestle with, and it's found in verse 66 to 72 at the end of the chapter. Verse 66 begins to detail the familiar story. By this time, Jesus has been taken on inside, and Peter is left in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire, and a little servant girl squints through the darkness at him and says, Hey, hey, Mr. You! You were with them. You were with that Nazarene Jesus. And the Bible says that Peter vehemently begins to deny it and says, I don't know or understand what you're even talking about, woman. But this gal wasn't to be stopped. Verse 69 says that she turned to the bystanders and literally in the original it says she kept on saying, this is one of them, this is one of them, this is one of them. I'm sure right about that time, Peter was thinking about what the proverbial writer said about the persistent woman. But the more Peter denies it, the more the bystanders pick up on his accent. And they join the girl and say, yes, surely you are one of them because of your accent. Have you ever been identified by your accent? 
When I was doing my master's work down at Wheaton in Chicago, Illinois, I worked, had the privilege of working on the Watts lines, telephone lines, selling for uh, Ken Taylor, the publisher, paraphraser of the Living Bible, selling the Christian reader that many of you have in your, your churches. And we used to phone up and uh, ask churches if they would like to purchase this magazine. But it never failed to, uh, to, to uh, amaze me how that I would be oh, five lines, 10 lines into my presentation, and somebody would say, uh, uh, how long y'all been over from Canada? I'd say to them, how do you know that I am from Canada? And they'd say something like this, because I've been there, eh? You see, if you had a Galilean accent, it was thicker than a Texas drawl, than a Bronx accent. You could detect it a mile away, just like that. And they did. And verse 21 says they did so much that Peter began to call curses down on himself. And he swore to them, I don't even know this man you're talking about. Who said that? Who said that? The man who a few verses earlier said, you can count on me. You can always count on me. The man who six hours earlier said, my devotion is so great that it's willing, if necessary, to go to the point of death. Friends in Christ, I would submit to us this morning that if we're sitting here and thinking, well, that's a beautiful story, Gord, nice little pious platitude, but that would never happen to me. My friend, I would submit to you that you may well be on the same road or easily go down it. Then look at the last verse of the story, verse 72, where it says, immediately the rooster crew, uh, crowed the second time, and the Bible says, then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought thereon, he wept. You see, Peter did think, but unfortunately he thought too little and too late. And I've observed it and it really bothers me in my own life and in the life of many Christians, maybe in yours as well, that one of the greatest deficiencies that I see in our lives is the tendency to plow on through life, doing the same things that we have done in our church, doing the same things that we have done in the kingdom for years without ever stopping to think and to learn from it and to ask what we are doing and why we are doing it and how that affects it in relation in the light of eternity in relation to the whole work of the kingdom. He thought, but he thought too late. Way back in the third century, there was a man by the name of Julian the Apostate who determined to wipe out every trace of Christianity. And to his disgust, however, as he tried to do this, he discovered what some have called the law of spiritual thermodynamics, namely, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. And the more he tried to persecute the church, the more the thing flourished. So <clears throat> one day he got a scraggly little band of persecutors together in an upper room and he shouted at them, Bah! Christianity promotes too much thinking.
why even the slaves are thinking. Now, to the Roman mind, that was incredible, because to the Roman mind, slaves did not think. But ladies and gentlemen, when slaves and when ordinary people come in contact with the word of God and we'll learn from the failures of others as we have been trying to track through this morning, they do think and they do learn. Will you? Will I? And I think as we close this morning, I hear a question out there, though, from some. I, I think I'm hearing from many. Brother Gord, what we have shared this morning, what we have tracked through these four steps have not really been very good news for me because what they have almost done is chronicled my life and the most recent chapter of my life in the last few weeks or months or maybe years. Some of you are sitting there and thinking for, for yourself or for your loved one or someone you know, my, in relation to your personal life, your sexual life, your social life, your emotional life, the ability to handle your temper and other emotions. You have boasted too much and prayed too little and acted too soon and thought too little and too late. And you say, well, that this whole process you've shared this morning might be a wonderful thing and a preventative for somebody else, but what's the good news to me because I have already slithered down the stairs of that road of failure. And I've done it, as a matter of fact, so many times that I really came to this camp thinking I pretty well run the string out on God. Well, that's where the good news part of this story is so important, and I want to share it with you before we close this morning or as we close. Because there is good news. It's the most exciting, intriguing part of this whole story. It's the fact that this man with the fourfold flop, Peter, found out that with Jesus Christ, failure is never fatal. As a matter of fact, Simon Peter and millions of others of us have found that Jesus Christ, and isn't it good to know it, has the greatest folly recovery program going after we slither down these four steps towards failure. He welcomes failures. He longs to give them a second chance. You say, well, Brother Franklin, I sure don't see that in this story. Well, no, it's not in this story. You have to turn over with me to the rest of the story which is found over in the seventh verse of chapter 16, where young John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God in the same book, is writing what most scholars feel are the transcribed words of the Apostle Peter. You know that, that Mark's gospel is often called the gospel of Peter, as written by Mark. And that's important because it's only in those gospel, this gospel, that you will find Jesus speaking to the ladies, the women, on Sunday morning, three days after Peter, Peter's miserable failure. And he says, did you ever note it? Go tell the disciples and Peter that I am going to Galilee. Did, did you hear what he said? Can I paraphrase it? He's saying this, ladies, don't stand there, go tell the disciples. And then in my mind's eye, I see the Lord pause for a moment, and a smile breaks around the corner of his lips, and he says, and especially Peter, that I am going to Galilee. Well, why would Peter be singled out? Wasn't he a disciple too? Why couldn't he have just said, go tell the disciples? Sure, he could have said that. 
But it was as if all of heaven had seen Peter so miserably fall and fail. But now a new message was being wrung out again, a, good, a, a positive message, a message of, of hope from the celestial th uh, throne room through the divine courier Jesus. And he's underscoring it, I believe. Be sure to tell Peter that he's not left out because of failure. Be sure to tell Peter that failure isn't fatal. Be sure to tell Peter that he gets to bat again. Oh, it's no wonder, isn't it, that they call it the gospel of the second chance. It's because it's authored by the God of the second chance. And there's some of you that need to take this message that the Lord has given us home with you to your own heart or to someone else because the most recent chapter of your life, I do believe, has been stamped with failure and the miserable experience of mistakes. And it's been bookended by a lot of broken hearts and lonely nights. And for you this morning, the story from the Father's Word is that you can have a second chance. Learning from the slippery road of Peter's failure how to prevent it again, but clinging on to that good news that's like finding a $100 bill in a drawer full of old envelopes. Go tell the disciples, and especially Peter. Just ask Peter, especially Peter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I doubt if there's one here amongst us, if we were honest, who has not slithered down, slipped on, or is not presently gone through in their life the miserable experience of failure in their spiritual life. And as we tracked through this word, part of the word this morning, it was like a mirror put in front of their heart and their mind, boasting too much, praying too little, acting too soon, and thinking too late. Corporately, all together now, Lord, what we want to say and pray in Jesus' name is that you would forgive us for that, and that more than that, that you would forgive us for these errors, these mistakes, these grievous failures that we brought to Manhattan this year, but that you would help us as a preventative to take a look at Peter's life. And when we see ourselves starting to go down those stairs again, to ask for your strength to fall on our knees, recognizing that our need is not partial but total. And therefore, to have a more powerful, joyous, positive, and victorious Christian life than we've ever had before. Now, we're all going to pray this and agree it in Jesus' name. And I'm going to pray that this would be the turnaround date, that some of these notes that I've noticed my friends making in their Bibles, in their flyleaf, and a little piece of notepaper would be something that we would return to, and that we will achieve great victory over the enemy of our souls in our march forward to grow in the image of Christ because of what was gleaned from the word this morning.
Oh, Lord, we thank you for it. I wonder while we're bowed in prayer, could you sing with me? Maybe we can sing it just without the piano. Bowed in prayer and make it our prayer, tying together the words of what we have said. Something beautiful, something good. And pray that out of all of the failure and the mistakes that you brought to camp, that I brought to camp, that through the screen of the experience of the word this morning, that the Lord will make something beautiful, something good. Could we sing it together prayerfully? Something beautiful, something